Hallelujah. Hasn't the Lord blessed us with a wonderful worship team? Amen. And uh, it's great to see you in the house. And we've got many people outside the house watching online. And uh, we welcome you as well. And uh, we have often more than 25 countries represented in those who are watching each week. And we're excited to have you with us as well. Well, I'm going to be preaching tonight from the book of Nehemiah. We're in that series called Moving Forward. And just before I share, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and recognize that we can do nothing without you. We thank you that you are here this evening. And in your presence, Lord, we find the ability to do things that we couldn't normally do in our own strength. Help me this evening, Lord, as I bring forth your word. May it be directly from your throne. Lord, get, help me to get out of the way and you be seen and heard in this place, I pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Well, what a privilege to be able to share with you this evening. We're in the middle of this series, as I said, moving forward. As I was preparing this message, I was looking at our mini grandfather clock across from me. And uh, it has a pendulum. It's a brass pendulum that swings back and forth. And uh, it reminded me of something, that uh, much of life is that back and forth experience. But without that pendulum of going from the right to the left, you don't move forward. The hand doesn't move forward. Time doesn't proceed unless there's that swing back and forth. And some of us are in the swing of life and we don't like some of the direction it goes. But the Lord also brings us back, sometimes to the other side and then to the middle. And God actually is leading us forward if we put our life into his hands. Praise God. Well, we know that in the book of Nehemiah, there were a lot of pendulum swings. There were successes and there were failures. There was uh, great excitement about finishing this wall in Jerusalem. And there was great discouragement as opposers came and tried to stop the whole building project. But we know that eventually it was accomplished and miraculously the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt in just 52 days. They moved forward and they got to where they were called to go. So tonight we're going to look at a passage in Nehemiah in this series called Moving Forward from chapter 6 beginning at verse 14 through to chapter 7 verse 5. It's 10 verses and we're going to learn tonight about the six C's of leadership. I'm not talking about the Dead Sea or the Red Sea, but I'm talking about six characteristics of leadership that begin with the letter C. Now, that doesn't sound very creative, but you would, you'd be surprised. Just do a Google search and look for the C's of leadership, and you'll see Leadership gurus talking about the three C's of leadership, or the four C's, or the five C's. I was just reading an article this week from the Harvard Business Review. A professor from Harvard came up with seven C's, especially how to lead and survive through this COVID crisis. Well, I'm only going to do six C's tonight. Otherwise, we'd be here all night. And uh, I promise to keep it fairly short. How many of you are with me so far? Good. We, I saw a few hands and uh, the rest of you just hang in there, okay? Now I think we could find these 
six C's of leadership in our 10-verse text here. And we begin to read at verse 14. Let's do that. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, according to the, their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when our enemies heard of it, and the nations around saw these things, that they were disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this was the work, this was work done by God. Also in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Yehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also they reported his good works before me, and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors and when the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. Now before you think to yourself, I'm, I'm not really a leader. So I'm going to tune you out, Pastor. I'm, you could talk to the rest of the people who are leaders. Well, if you're a stay-at-home mom, I would even say you're a CEO of your household. And uh, at least until your husband gets home, maybe. And by the way, I think you've got one of the hardest leadership roles on the planet, helping your kids to move forward towards spiritual maturity, developing life skills, etc. Some of you are university students and you say, well, I'm not a leader yet. I'm, I'm in studying, but I'm not a leader. Well, do you have a roommate or two or three? Well, I can tell you, you need leadership in that apartment. Um, if you don't do something about the various roles to play in that apartment, that's going to be a very chaotic place and not a very good place to study or get sleep. And if you're not fitting in any of these categories, believe me, you need to know that the principle of leadership will apply to you one day as you move into some form of leadership. And so you can learn something from Nehemiah, these six C's of godly leadership. The first C is calling. A true leader knows that he or she is called. People who lack this leadership quality, having a sense of calling, are often confused about why they exist. They don't know what the purpose of their life is. And if you don't know your calling, your mission, your purpose, then you're not really ready to lead very effectively. This matter of calling and purpose is critical, and it's so rare. And that's the reason why we have a leadership crisis in our world today. There's this widespread sense of leadership, leaderlessness in our world. People don't know what their purpose is, what their calling is. Maybe it's one of the reasons why a book entitled 
purpose-driven life is one of the most uh, widely published and sold book on our planet with over 50 million copies sold and translated into more languages than any other book except the Bible. Now from our text, we see that Nehemiah understood his specific calling. Our text begins at verse uh, 15. Our second verse in our text is verse 15 where Nehemiah says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Now Nehemiah will go on to accomplish other things in addition to the building of this wall. He understood as long as Jerusalem's walls lay in ruins, then the Jewish people would never move forward. They would continue to live as exiles even in their own land. Whether it was a physical thing or a spiritual thing. And Jerusalem would not be ready for the exiles still scattered in Persia that needed to come home unless the wall was completed. Now, do you have a clear sense of calling on your life? If you don't, I hope this challenge this evening will cause you to pray and seek the face of God. Maybe fast and pray to get a sense of why you're on the planet. What is your ultimate purpose and calling? For Nehemiah, his calling was not something that came from his gut, but it came from God. Nehemiah knew his calling because he knew his God. He had a personal, intimate relationship with his God. How do I know that? Well, in verse 14 of our text, he prays, My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Now, if you go through the whole book of Nehemiah, 11 times that very phrase appears. My God. Not just God, my God. Great spiritual leaders have a personal connection with God. Moses sang in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, He is my God, and I will praise him. Later, Moses declared, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God, and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Joshua declared, I wholly follow the Lord my God. King David sang a song and declared, For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. A survey of scripture shows that the phrase, my God, is confessed by biblical personalities in 169 verses. You and I will never find ourselves moving forward and accomplishing God's purposes for our life until we have that my God personal relationship with him. We are totally on his wavelength when we are in intimate fellowship and communion with him. That's where we discover our calling and where we get reminded of our calling when we find ourselves in difficult places. David assumed that we all have a unique purpose on this planet. He says in Psalm 20 verse 4, May he, that is God, grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. Our Messiah knew his calling and his purpose to suffer and die on the cross to save repentant sinners. In John chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. His intimate communication and communion with his father reinforced his calling and his purpose. And when you are facing a major dilemma in your life and you get discouraged and you're wondering, am I really in the will of God? If you'll go to your God, your personal 
relationship with God in prayer, I believe he will reassure you of that calling he has indeed given you. Now, once you've got that sense of God's calling in your life, it doesn't mean you need to tell everybody. I think of Joseph who told his brothers that one day he would rule over them. I don't know how wise that was. What about Nehemiah? Well, when Nehemiah first came to Jerusalem and he inspected the ruins of the walls and was very upset about the situation, the Lord gave him a call to rebuild the walls. And what did he say? I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. There can be some wisdom in not telling the whole story, not creating unrealistic expectations of those around us who are looking for great things from us because we told them how great we would be. But just because other people don't know or see your calling in life, God sees it and God is there to help you fulfill it. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 where Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Yeshua, the Messiah. And we know that Nehemiah was doing a good work. He had begun to rebuild the walls, but his calling would extend beyond the walls. In the last verse of our text, Nehemiah says, then my God put it into my heart to gather. And in two more weeks, I get to preach again, and I'll be preaching from Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, where Nehemiah gathered the people of Jerusalem at the water gate to hear the word of God read by the scribe Ezra. And so Nehemiah knew his calling to rebuild the walls, but he also needed to rebuild the lives of a broken people in Jerusalem. So we looked at the first C of godly leadership, and it's having a call and knowing your call. Second is character. Leadership can be a seductive thing. A lot of people want to be leaders because they have this notion that leadership will enable them to have power. And uh, some look at the benefits, maybe financial or otherwise, to being a leader. But true and lasting leadership that pleases God requires godly character. The best kind of leaders are servant leaders. And we see from our text in verse 16 of chapter 6 that Nehemiah says this work was done by our God. Nehemiah really didn't see this work and this accomplishment of rebuilding the walls in 52 days as his accomplishment, but he recognized he was only a servant obeying his boss, his Lord, and that's why he succeeded in building this wall. We read in verse 16, and it happened when our, all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Nehemiah doesn't take the credit for it. He gives most of the credit to the Lord himself, and eventually we'll see how he gives credit to the workers that worked alongside of him. As soon as Nehemiah heard about the desperate condition of Jerusalem and its ruined walls, he prayed this way. And you'll get a sense of what kind of, a, what kind of character he had. And it was a, character as, a characteristic trait of a servant. Listen to this, verse 5 of chapter 1. And I said, 
I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. And then a verse, few verses later in his prayer, he continues at verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Great leadership is servant leadership. This principle is understood even in the secular world. More and more, we're reading leadership materials, gurus that are saying, if you don't serve the people you lead, you're not going to be successful as a leader. They don't give credit to the Bible or to God for this leadership principle, but it's very true. This is what Yeshua said about true leadership in Mark chapter 10, verse 42 and following. But Yeshua called the disciples to himself and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become a great, become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Seems that Nehemiah had already learned this principle. Yeshua, Nehemiah, were on the same page when it comes to servant leadership. At the end of Nehemiah's first prayer in this book, he says to God, and let your servant prosper this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Not only was Nehemiah a servant of God, but he understood he was a servant of men as well. He had a privileged position, but he was still a servant to the king of Persia. Yeah, we talk about the fact that he because he was the one who tasted the wine before it was given to the king, that he had to be a trusted man, and if he's trusted, then the king would probably ask him for advice or input into the affairs of state. But Nehemiah understood that even in that significant role, he was a servant to the king of Persia. He'd make a good deacon, by the way, serving tables. As that's what the word means in the book of Acts in chapter 6. And Nehemiah stated this clearly in, cha- in the second chapter of the book, in verses 4 and 5. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah mentioned one of the greatest leaders of all time. And in Judaism would be considered the primary model of leadership, and that is Moses. And he refers to him in the text as your servant, Moses. And if you look at godly leaders throughout the Bible, you will often see that they think of themselves and even state it, that they understood that they were servants before they were leaders. I think of the Apostle Paul, who sometimes people think he was maybe a little hard on people, maybe a little bit too authoritarian. 
And yet this is what he says at the beginning of a few of his letters. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of the Messiah Yeshua, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Yeshua the Messiah. Titus 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Yeshua the Messiah. A person who does not understand him or himself or herself as a servant will never make a good boss. If you don't understand yourself to be first a servant, you will never make a great boss. One can only be an authentic servant leader if he or she is humble. Servant leaders admit their mistakes and their shortcomings. And I don't have time to go through um, the prayer, the full prayer of Nehemiah back in chapter 7. But he uses the word we more than he uses the word I. And when he's confessing sins of the people, he says, we have sinned. Not they have sinned, but we have sinned. He was a humble man of God. He recognized his own weaknesses. He knew he was just a servant. And because of those qualities in his life, he became a great leader. Number three of our six C's, care. So we've looked at two already. A godly leader knows his or her calling. And number two, a godly leader has godly character. And the character trait most important for a leader is the character trait of a servant heart. Now the third C of godly leadership is care. Now I could have used a number of C's here. I could have said concern or compassion, but I chose care. And they're all basically synonyms. And Nehemiah's care is evident in our text. Nehemiah didn't just care about his building project, but he cared about his buildings, or builders, I should say. Even though by this time the wall had been built, the wall it's in of itself could not guarantee the safety and security of his builders and his people in the city. And so we see in chapter 7, verse 3, that he appointed guards and then we read, and I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So Nehemiah's concern, his care was also demonstrated in the next verses where it says the people in it, in the city that is, were few and the houses were not rebuilt. It's one thing to have this great project that everybody can see from miles around that the wall of Jerusalem has been built. That's impressive. But he cared about the people living inside the walls, that their houses had not yet been rebuilt. And they were insecure. He cared about that. I think those of us who have been entrusted by God and we have children and teenagers, how much do we really care that we would guard them from the enemy forces of our day? Do we care enough to protect them from the evil that can be accessed and downloaded from the internet? In verse 4 of chapter 7, we see that Nehemiah made sure that the gates were not open during the most vulnerable times of the day. Probably at the hottest time of the day when people were inside their houses and trying to be cool and would not be out in the sun watching for enemies potentially on the horizon. Nehemiah didn't only care about accomplishing his God-given personal calling, but he cared about the personal welfare of the people he was serving. 
And later we will see that Nehemiah's problems were not only with his enemies outside, like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. We will see that in the chapters following, in the text we will be learning in the next several weeks, that within his own Jewish ranks there were people with serious problems, with major sin issues and lostness. And Nehemiah wasn't just concerned about the problem-free people, but he cared for the kind of people that Yeshua would later come to serve. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we read, But when Yeshua saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep having no shepherd. No matter what kind of leadership role we are given by God, one of our top priorities needs to be the care of the people who have been entrusted into our hands. Throughout this book, Nehemiah demonstrates the depth of his care. He was willing to sacrifice even the personal benefits that come from leadership. We read this back in chapter 5 and verse 14 and following. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, Neither I or my brothers ate the governor's provisions. Then we read in verse 15, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. And then we read in verse 17, And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations round about us. Now, that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep, also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was very heavy on the people." Nehemiah was a sacrificial leader. He could have benefited from his leadership position. He could have asked for many provisions just for himself and his closest buddies. But around his table, he had 150 people. He was hospitable. He was giving. He was sacrificial in every way. That's a great trait for leaders, that you care for others in your care. I love what Yeshua said. He had that leadership quality. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we come to the fourth trait of godly leadership that we learn from Nehemiah, and that's coordination. Now, now that sounds kind of um, prosaic, kind of mundane, but I, I think I'll convince you now the importance of coordination in godly leadership. If your body were to suddenly lose coordination, you would not be able to function very well. And it's the same for a corporate body of people. If there's no coordination, there's chaos. If there's no coordination, there's confusion. If there's no coordination, there's no accomplishment. And so Nehemiah had this godly leadership quality as well. We read in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, When the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah. 
Now, earlier in chapter 3, we see Nehemiah's incredible ability to coordinate the various tasks and the people to accomplish this Jerusalem wall construction project. If he hadn't coordinated the various teams and maximized their unique skills, they would never have been able to complete this mission in 52 days. And here in our text, we see that after the wall was completed, that the job of coordination was not completed. Did you know that the gift of administration is indeed a spiritual gift? This qualification of a leader is not so mundane at all. The Holy Spirit is a creative spirit and it often takes creativity to coordinate an organization, a ministry, a business. Romans chapter 12 verse 4, Paul talks about these various motivational gifts and you'll see that leadership is included. Administration is included in this. Chapter 12 verse 4, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in the Messiah and individually members of one another. So we already see the coordination of the the need for coordination among the gifts and the talents of people within a congregation. And then, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. If he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads, he who leads with diligence. So that we see that within the body of believers, there are different people with different gifts. But if we don't coordinate the various tasks and gifts of our people, we will not move forward in the purposes of God. And Paul in verse 5 emphasizes in that text that though we are different from one another, we are individually members of one another. We're one unit. And that takes coordination to make that happen. In verse 8, Paul says, He who leads must lead with diligence. Now, there are other ways of translating that phrase, the one who leads. One translation is, let the administrator exercise sound judgment in his duties. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament translation from the Hebrew, says that the word for lead means to maintain. In one of the lexicons, it can mean manager. In another Greek lexicon, it says that this phrase means to set over or to appoint with authority. So we see this gift of administration or coordination in the life of Nehemiah. He appoints people. He delegates tasks and roles to various types of people. He coordinates it all. And so we see this in chapter 7, verse 1. And when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed... I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah. A godly leader has a gift of coordination, administration. Not only looks at putting a team together based on their gifting alone. In fact, these people were appointed to major tasks for two more important character traits than their own competence or their gifting. In fact, when it came to the administration over Jerusalem for a season while Nehemiah would go back to Persia and back to the king to report to him. We see that his brother Hanani and another man named Hananiah were appointed for two other important traits. And what were they? 
says concerning Hananiah, he was a faithful man and feared God. It doesn't say he was competent. He was supernaturally talented, but he was faithful and he feared God. It's tempted for a leader to be too impressed with people's giftings. In my experience at over 40 years as a ministry leader, I can't count the number of times I've seen gifted people put into positions of leadership because of their gift and not because they were faithful and had the fear of God. And this goes for any type of ministry. And frankly, even in the business world, in the nonprofit world, in the world of institutions, the most talented don't necessarily make the best leaders. The success of a ministry or organization can be totally destroyed if a leader comes into the picture with impressive talents, but below the surface of the water is a mammoth iceberg that could shipwreck the whole enterprise. But Nehemiah would not be tricked into appointing the wrong people. With his gift of coordination or administration, he chose the right people. Chose one man because he was faithful. And because he had the fear of God. I've seen ministries led by some people that from the outside you wouldn't think that they're that impressive. In appearance, in their communication skills, in other external signs of authority or leadership. And, and yet, some of the greatest ministries and businesses I've watched over the years are characterized by coordination a gift of administration uh, pastor chris hodges has a phenomenal church it's the second largest church in america i've been to several of the conferences that he hosts and he's a good speaker but he's not phenomenal but he does get to speak at a lot of conferences because of the amazing success of growing his church to fifty-five thousand people People want to know what are, what are your secrets. And almost every time I've heard him speak, he's referred to McDonald's. And he will say, let's just face it, guys. McDonald's doesn't make the best burger. But McDonald's gets that burger in your hands quicker than anyone else because they've got the right system. They have the right coordination. And so they deliver their product quickly and efficiently. Coordination is not only crucial on a macro scale, but coordination is critical even for a successful marriage and family system. Children and teenagers need to be given chores not only to make sure things get done around the house, but it's through that experience of doing those chores that they gain skills and experience in various tasks and make them ultimately better citizens and leaders in their own right. Husbands and wives need to coordinate their own roles at, the, at home. At home, I've been the one in charge of finances all these years. My wife's been in charge of a lot of other things as well, but she hates finances, so I get to do it. Now, she's recently been appointed as the director of the summit on the top of this building for prayer and worship, and it's exciting, but she has less time now around the house, and I'm having to learn some new skills. And you're not going to be impressed with any of them. But I more often take initiative to take out the garbage. Um, Anne still is the chef, but I do most of the cleanup after the meal now. You can talk to her later and just see if what I'm telling you is true. I, I hope it is. She's laughing anyway, I see that. Thank you. 
So you need a family system. You need coordination in a home. If you're leading a family, you need coordination. Every year, our leadership team here at King of Kings sits down and looks at all of our various functions and leadership and our portfolios, and we make adjustments and shifts according to the season and what's needed and how we might best fulfill those tasks. And I can tell you, Pastor Chad is a far more talented coordinator or administrator than I've ever been as senior pastor in this ministry. It's impressive what he can do. God uses his gift of coordination in a marvelous way. We come to number five, and I'm going to be shorter in these last two, but the next C of these traits of leadership is courage. We've looked at four characteristics of godly leadership as demonstrated by Nehemiah. Number one, calling. Two, character. Three, care. And four, coordination. And now the fifth, courage. It takes courage to be a godly leader. I won't spend a lot of time here. Pastor Mike spoke last week about the people that opposed the work of God and tried to stop this whole project. And the main point and character trait that Mike pointed out was that Nehemiah persevered. And wow, that's such an important trait as well, but I won't cover that. But courage is also necessary We see evidence of Nehemiah's courage in our text in chapter 6, verse 14, where Nehemiah turns to God in prayer and he says, My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to their works and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have have made me afraid. I like what he says. He didn't say who made me afraid, but would have made me afraid. But he wasn't afraid. He was a godly leader because he was a fearless leader. In the natural, there are reasons to be afraid. We have terrorism, we have war, and we have a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. And we need courage in this, these latter days when the battle is getting tougher. I've walked a couple of times in the past two weeks in the old city, and two weeks ago I went up on the ramparts on the inside part of the wall of Jerusalem in the Armenian quarter and I looked through that vertical slit in the wall it was the they call it an arrow slit and back in the day they would shoot arrows at the enemy out of those slits or they'd use crossbows and more modern it would be guns and even machine guns but I'm reminded that we are in a spiritual battle and because of that we actually created arrow slits in the wall of Jerusalem stone that we built in the summit. If you go up there, you'll see those slits in the wall. We don't have any armaments up there. We have no rifles, no crossbows, but we understand we're in spiritual warfare and the enemy wants to stop us in our tracks because he knows that we have a great calling on our lives and in this ministry as well. Paul tells us in Ephesians six seventeen and 18 that there are two arms that we need to have, armaments that we need to have. Number one, he says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the scriptures. And he says with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. It's the word and it's prayer. And when I think of prayer, I also think of communion with God and bowing before God, and that's worship, worship, prayer, and the Word. We pray into the Word, the promises of Scripture. And that's a powerful force against the enemy who would try to destroy us in these latter days. Do you need more courage for your battle? Join us at the summit. 
There's greater power when we engage in this warfare together. In the words of Matthew chapter 18, verse 19 and 20, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. There's something unique and more powerful when we pray together. So if you're in a tough spiritual battle right now, and we all are, I think, pray with somebody else. It's so important. I got a phone call yesterday from a leader, leads over 2,000 people, and he will call me from time to time for, for some feedback, and he talked about how there is a small group of people who are upset, and they're sending letters of accusation around to people in his organization and even beyond. And he asked, have you got the letter, letters yet? And I hadn't, hadn't gotten the letters yet. But it was very interesting that at the very time I'm preparing this message from Nehemiah, that I had the relevant verses to share with him to encourage him in the middle of his battle. For we read in Nehemiah six seventeen and following, and in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Yehochanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, and they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. <laughs> so I t- told my friend, read those verses. It's so relevant to your situation. He said, I'm thinking of quitting. I said, don't you quit. Nehemiah didn't quit, even though these letters of accusation came against him. Hallelujah. Isn't the Lord good? His timing is perfect for such a time as this. And I come now to the last C, and it's capacity. We've talked about five leadership qualities exemplified in Nehemiah. Calling character, care, coordination, and courage, and now capacity. One of the things I've learned in leadership over these more than 40 years is that some people can have all five of those other characteristics, but there is something that they lack in their leadership ability and ability to move forward with God. And that critical characteristic is capacity. Some people are described as high capacity. Other people are called low capacity. Nehemiah didn't delegate leadership to others because he was worn out. He says that he hung the doors in our text. No task was ever beneath Nehemiah. No task was too hard for him. He was a high capacity leader. What is capacity? A synonym for capacity is volume. We might talk about the capacity of your fuel tank in your car. It might be 12 gallons or 55 liters. And there's a phrase in our text that may seem a little strange to make this point about capacity, but this is what Nehemiah says in chapter 7, verse 1. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. A leader needs sufficient amount of capacity, fuel, to give to the leadership role he or she has. Some people have only six gallons out of their 12-gallon fuel tank to give to the leadership role they have. There are so many other things that are, they're dealing with in life, and it might be a complicated home life. It might be a physical infirmity. It might be some other emotional issue that's distracting them and keeping them 
from giving the full 12 gallons of fuel to the work that they're called to do. And I have sympathy for people that have a lower capacity. It's one of the reasons, frankly, I handed off the baton to Pastor Chad six years ago. I was beginning to have low capacity. I was in my early 60s. I'd already had two heart attacks. And while my passion for the Lord and commitment to the work of King of Kings was just as strong as ever, my body was not as strong. My emotional capacity was not there to be able to face the challenges that you face when you're the senior leader of an organization or a ministry. Now, is there a way to increase your leadership capacity? There is such a thing as working smarter instead of harder. If you sharpen your axe, you can cut down a lot more trees in less time and with less energy than if you have a dull axe and you're trying to cut down trees. And frankly, I think I've sharpened my axe over the past several years. Since I handed off the baton, I've had more time to get better training. It's never too late to get better training. I've got a better toolkit of resources in my digital library that I'm using. And I'm not working as hard as I used to be, but I think I'm almost as effective as I was when I had more strength. It's kind of like golf. And I like to play golf. And I've discovered the harder you try to hit that ball off the tee, the worse your game is. The ball goes off to the right or to the left. It doesn't go straight. And sometimes you just miss the ball. But if you relax and you just hit the ball naturally, without angst, you'll discover that it goes straight. It goes toward the mark. And I think if you work smart, you don't have to work so hard. And you have more time for the other priorities of your life, which may include your marriage. It could include your family. It could include friends that you've lost touch with because you've been so intensely engaged in your leadership. I'm reminded of Caleb, and I close with this. We read these words of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, one of those two spies who 45 years earlier, before he said this, came back with a good report with Joshua that the children of Israel could go in to Canaan and they would conquer it with God's help. Now listen to these words in Joshua 14, verse 10 and following. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. As he has said these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and coming in. Now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron, Hebron, to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Now there's a high capacity guy. Just as strong as he ever was. But I think he was probably strong more emotionally, more in the interior of his life than he could have been physically on the outside. But God used him into his old age. I want to be like Caleb.
I want to be like him. What are the keys to having strength to lead when in the natural we're getting weaker in the flesh? The key is depending on the power of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of the Messiah may rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distress for the Messiah's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he wrote in an earlier letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2, in verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. That's the key. Recognizing your weakness, your inability really to lead effectively in your own natural ability and strength. But if we will ask God to fill us with his spirit every day, to empower us with his spirit to do the work that he's called us to do, we will rebuild the wall. We will rebuild the people that God has placed in our sphere of influence. He will do a great and wonderful work through us. Would you stand with me? I want us to pray and I want us to ask for that power of the Holy Spirit to come. Maybe you'd put your hands out like this and to, to acknowledge your emptiness. Maybe your fuel tank is pretty low and ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you afresh. Fill up that tank so that you can travel, you can move forward in the purposes of God. Would you pray after me? Oh, Father, Fill me with your Holy Spirit in a fresh way tonight that I would leave transformed, that I would have a greater measure of ability to lead in the areas you've called me to lead and that I would accomplish the very purpose you've given to me. In Yeshua's name, amen. And if you've never met the Messiah and don't know about the spirit of Messiah, the Holy Spirit, this is a night to say yes to the Lord. He's inviting you to come to him. And when you come to him, he fills you with his life. And his life then lives through you. And you will do great exploits for God and for mankind. If you want to know how to do that, we're available to you this evening. You can write us online if you're watching online. You can let us know in the chat or through an email. And you who are in the room, we're here for you. We love you. We care. God bless you.